0: Hi everyone, thanks for coming back from the break. The mic on. I'm Holly Robertson, the exhibitions coordinator here with the University of Virginia Library. It's my pleasure to introduce our second panel this morning, Storytelling and Memory, and our three presenters. Unfortunately, one of our panelists, Sameet Malik, had some travel woes en route to Charlottesville, which are familiar to anyone who's tried to get to Charlottesville before. <laughs> But thankfully, we've been able to switch up the lineup, and we're so grateful to Aisha Haikel for joining us. She was previously a member of the Community Archives panel this afternoon, so Aisha and Zemeep are going to switch out, and we're going to um, have a wonderful panel on storytelling and memory. Our first presenter is Aisha. She's the Manager of the Archival Services at the College of Charleston's Avery Research Center for African American History and Culture. In this position, she is responsible for collections development, public programming, instruction, reference, and administrative duties. She's been involved in a number of professional associations, including the Society of American Archivists, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. Her research interests include African American history, digital preservation, censorship, and community archiving. Our second speaker today will be Julianne L. Richardson, public historian and founder and president of the History Makers a unique she has a unique and diverse background in theater television production and the cable television industry she is a magna cum laude graduate of brandeis university where she double majored in theater arts and american studies after conducting oral histories on the harlem renaissance langston hughes richardson attended the harvard law school after graduation she worked as a corporate lawyer prior to serving in the early 1980s as the cable administrator for the City of Chicago Office of Cable Communications. There she established the Chicago Cable Commission, the city's regulatory body. She went on to found Shop Chicago, a regionally based home shopping channel. Driven to start the history makers out of a strong desire to make a difference and to leave a living legacy. The University of Illinois at Chicago's Great Cities Institute named Juliana Richardson, its Vernon D. Jarrett Fellow. In 2002, she served on the board of the Henry Hampton Collection at the University, Washington University. She currently sits on the Honors Council of Lawyers for the Creative Arts and was appointed in 2011 to Comcast NBC Universal African American Diversity Council. In 2012, she was awarded an honorary doctorate in Humanities by Howard University and in 2014 she served as the commencement speaker for Dominican University who award, also awarded her an honorary doctorate in the Humanities. In twenty fourteen, Black Enterprise Magazine awarded Richardson its twenty fourteen Legacy Award, its highest recognition of women's achievement. That same year, Richardson was profiled in Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm sorry, profiled in American Masters, The Boomer List, a PBS documentary and exhibition at the museum in Washington, D.C. She served as the commencement speaker for Brandeis University's sixty fifth annual commencement in twenty sixteen, where she also received an honorary doctorate of humane letters. Our third speaker is Maria Veronica San Martin, a studio artist at the Whitney Museum, ISP. She's a Chilean-born, New York-based artist working in printmaking, artist books, installation, sculpture, and performance. The subject matter of her work departs from Violence and Dictatorship, Chile, 1973 to 1990, 90, vis-a-vis the United States and Nazism involvement in that violence, addressing memory as a pivotal factor for the understanding of the neoliberal, globalized present. San Martin has had exhibitions at the Museum of Memory and Human Rights in Chile, Brick Arts Media in New York, the Cantor Arts Center, Stanford University, California, the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek in Germany, and is preparing two solo shows for the Chilean National Archive and for the Merimano Museum in Netherlands. Her work is on, in the collections of the Pompidou Center, the New York Public Library, and the Walker Museum, among others. Thanks so much to our three presenters. Ayusha, will get us started. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay, so um, because of our community
1: archiving panel, this is kind of geared toward community archives, but I think it will translate into talking about memory and storytelling. So, the framework for my discussion today is the twenty eighteen blockbuster Black Panther. I hope you've all seen it. but if you have not, there may be some spoilers uh, for you. Uh, <laughs> but they are screening it here on campus tonight, um, if you had not seen it, and also on Netflix. So once I saw Black Panther multiple times, uh, multiple times you've seen the film, it became clear to me that there are a lot of symbols within the film that represents uh, history, legacy, memory, and culture preservation. So this is one of the first shots we get of Wakanda. Uh, this is when T'Challa comes back um, to see his family and to bury his uh, his father and take on the mantle of Black Panther. And so this is when this scene came on the screen at the movies. It was very palpable uh, excitement um, about this scene and what kind of future and stories this community can tell. And then we learn more and more about the community and the nations of Wakanda of and who T'Challa uh, aka Black Panther uh, is and really the history of the heart-shaped herb that the powers of the Black Panther comes through. And it tells the story at the beginning of the film about how these nations came together under, um, through, the, through the herb and how it's connecting and protection of the community. Um, throughout the film, though, you can see there's tug-of-war between access to vibranium, the, the, um, the metal or the alloy here that powers a lot of what's going on in Wakanda and protects um, that panther in his suit that's created by his sister, Shuri. So questions throughout the film that I hope to try to um, get everyone's questions through today is talking about what is special about Wakanda, what is special about history and legacies, Uh, where does this power come from, and and most importantly, who has access to these histories. So this is um, about three-way legacy-making. This kind of chart, um, because of my framework understanding community archives and how they've um, developed over time, we have community-started archives, which was started by community members and grassroots efforts. And the institutional starter archives, where institution sees the gaps in their collection and tries to um, rectify those issues, and then you have a partnership between a community organization, a community members, and an institution. And all of these have the um, different challenges to them, and they can be physical or digital, um, in 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 instance. Uh, I want to just point out the the items in bold I, I want to talk about community started archives and archivists as people. Uh, a lot of recent activism within archive world has come across archivists uh, who come from communities, have seen there's an issue and want to document their, their, what's happening in society. And so I want to point that archivists as communities, not just as practitioners, but as coming from a particular point of view perspective. And then you have an institution that starts records. It can be challenging because they might not know the institutional and community hierarchies and knowing where to go to and that can stumble and create blocks and creating uh, an archive. When you enter into a partnership, it is important to do a memo understanding to really outline expectations into a knowledge any kind of power dynamics. As we learned earlier in the first panel, there are many ways archi- uh, communities document themselves uh, without any kind of archive. And in supporting um, the LUSA SAA conference in Washington, D.C., there were several sessions about communities um, not needing archivists, and we need them more than we need them. Makes sense, yes. And so it's the, the region of biases, of wanting to go into like a saver complex to preserve and document these histories when they're already being documented in different ways. And so um, these are a couple of ways that African Americans and many other cultures have worked to document themselves um, in past histories along through um, textiles, through artifacts, through clothing, and even the built environment. So where I currently work at is the Avery Research Center of History and Culture at the College of Charleston, and this is started as a basically as a community archive um, where the community is the alumni of Avery. Um, it was originally a normal school that worked to um, educate African Americans after the after the Civil War to become teachers. Um, in the 1980s, alumni of Avery approached the College of Charleston to really encourage them to um, purchase the buildings and to start an archive for African American history and documenting the South Carolina low country uh, black experiences. And as the, um, and these people who are alum operate as a board to our current institution. So we own the library system at the college, and so we report to the library dean, but we also have the advisory board, executive board, that helps us stay in touch with the community uh, needs and issues. And they also sound, work as an advocate for us. And so they are able to do things that, and say things to people that we cannot do as state employees. Um, and so that is very important. So as we've collected materials, one of our collections, the sweetgrass baskets. Um, this is a sweetgrass baskets were used on plantations by enslaved Africans um, who used brought the transition over from the. Um, I'm sorry, from all from the continent when they were uh, working on the plantations with rice. Uh, over the years, they've kind of transitioned from more more decorative um, entities like the basket you see in the middle, uh, Miss Mary Jackson, now um, <laughs> well-renowned basket maker created that basket. And then we have Cesar Johnson, um, was a more traditional older style basket. And these um, baskets are very important to the South Carolina Lowcountry area because these are where um, the plantations were for rice. But over development has happened and access to the sweetgrass um, items to make the baskets have been um, very limited. And so there's ways that they're working on now to cultivate um, the, the, the grass to make these baskets, and to. Originally in South Carolina was a a road that they were selling the baskets on, but due to development, that access had become more dangerous. And so now they're trying to figure out what's going to happen to the grass basket stands that are currently there. Uh, Ms. Jackson, we had a meeting with her a couple uh, last week actually, talking about the history of our collection and how it came to be, and one of our colleagues, Dan Rosengarden, she was one of the spearheading of getting the collections to Avery. And the way that she was able to do that was through Mary. Um, Mary told her that you can't do this without me. <laughs> you couldn't, they won't, they won't talk to you otherwise. And so that was, you know, kind of build that trust I asked about earlier is kind of get that pivotal person in the community to buy into what you're trying to do. Um, Ms. Mary also mentioned that there was uh, the differences in how grass baskets are made. If you don't know, um, she can tell right away who makes a basket because of the kind of grass that they use and that where they came from because people on the islands made it differently than the people on the uplands or um, in a different town over because they access different kinds of baskets and different kinds of grass items. So these are two exhibit catalogs that were done by the McKissick. Um, that row upon row, and then uh, grassroots were done by, by Avery. So over the years, there's also been tension about who should be taught uh, how to do street grass basket making. Some people think it needs to be caught within the community and not accessible to other individuals, especially um, if they're white. Um, but there are other ones that think it should be, te- to, should be taught in order to pass on the history to uh, generations. So, as we continue to document and work within this community of African Americans and Lowcountry, uh, another pivotal part of history and heritage is food. Um, and so now we are working on, uh, we meeting Mustafa Avery um, is working on trying kind to of document of food waste. And so, learning what we did with the baskets, to kind of trying to transition that to the food uh, aspect of, of the culture. Uh, before I came to Avery, I was at the Chicago State University as a university archivist, and so I want to talk about that project as well. So, this is Ms. Pat Bearden. She was the co founder of the organization called ISDSA, um, which operated in 1996, and they worked to collect um, histories of people who can track the descendants to enslavement. And so, they got um, images and some story genealogy from individuals across the country to document um, these experiences. Their money came from the state of Illinois to to get that buy-in. In In 2015, she approached me about doing a partnership and doing digitizing items in their collection to put it on our kind of DM site and then eventually for DPLA. I had to take this to my Dean of Libraries to get buy-in, but similar to Trevor, uh, we are um, a public institution that, and our mission has about sustainability, empowerment, uh, community engagement, and so this was very um, you know, linked to that mission statement. So that was pretty good um, buy-in and acceptance of this proposal. Once that was achieved, we had to do training with her um, scanning equipment, which she came to our library to do once a week, about two and a half, well, a year uh, to two years to do this project. It's still ongoing. Uh, as you know, I did transition to no longer being there, um, but the new archivists has been working with this project uh, to, to do it. Uh, in hindsight, there's probably thing I could have done better um, to make the transition easier and to the hands off easier. And so we can talk about that in the Q and A if you have questions about that in terms of documentation and um, with metadata and everything. So as institutions come, do's and don'ts. Some do don'ts first. Uh, there don't assume that you're an expert in the community's history, uh, memory. Uh, can be very transitional. Uh, people often question alternative facts and who has the real truth. And the, question, the answer really is it's all true. It just a matter of the perspective you come at it. And as archivists, we need just to collect it all, and then let other people decide where where the truth is. And don't privilege Western practices or ideology of wanting to preserve everything. Some people's histories should just die, and we should be okay with that. Um, we don't need to collect everything. Um, and so that is kind of the relearning of what, you know, archive, what archivists do the right to be forgotten, basically. And don't do it because it's trendy or the cool thing to do right now. Uh, really have a commitment and authenticity like I mentioned earlier. It comes through when you coach communities. And um, one part of the do is know your history or institution. What kind of things that your institution has done to communities previously, and you may not think it's your fault, which probably is not there, possibly, but you need to recognize that it's that feeling is in the community, and to acknowledge it, and to even apologize for it, and to say, we're going to do better. And that's how you're going to make inroads. Also, like giving back to the community and descriptive practices, that you may have records in your archive already documenting this community but how it's described, you can't find it assess- more accessibly. And so, think about going back through records and seeing what you can find to pull out communities um, into your histories. And so, I want to pre- end this presentation talking about the people um, of, of the archivists of color um, that are often asked to do this work. So when we talk about hiring practices, we also, it's the thing that you're going to hire a person of color and then expect them to go into communities and do this work. And it's not easy as, as that because they are not monolithic. There are hierarchies and concerns that you may not even be aware of because you're not of that community, but the person of color recognizes that. And so they're going to be. Uh, microaggressions that they feel from communities even when they go into community and they're going to feel microaggressions coming from their colleagues at the library and so really the, the, emotional, the emotional labor that goes into this work is very heavy um, and to acknowledge that The issue of Killmonger. um, He, you know, they're all Wakandan, um, but they all definitely come from a different perspective, right? And trying to understand those perspectives in terms of history, in terms of uh, perspective, and and future. So at the end of uh, Black Panther, and then we get a little bit of this in the 90 Wars. Uh, what's the future of Wakanda? We're, we're not sure yet. Um, people felt like, in. I me people, I may just say myself, I felt kind of uh, at the Infinity Wars and Wakanda basically is destroyed. Um, there is very damaging damage happened to Wakanda. And so I kind of think about communities and how you let people in um, to do, you know, save the world. But then we end up, destroying ourselves um, in, in the in the process and so we think about your know, communities and you go into it make sure you do better you don't want to go in and do harm um, to communities um, I also want to say that when we undertake projects and community and memory projects like this it's important to as a, as a result of all this, we get to have representation of new people, of new audiences, and if we want to be sustainable uh, in our, our, our and librarians, we need to make sure that the communities are documented in, in a histories because they won't support you if you're closed from state budget funds. They don't care because they're not going to be impacted. But if their collection is there, if their people are there, then they will care. They will fight for you to stay open. And so just trying to build that relationship is important um, to, as we go forth. Thank you so much.
2: Good morning. Um, I, I thought uh, Aisha's um, presentation was excellent, and I want to say, Michael, I thought your beginning statements were really wonderful and very appropriate. And the subject uh, that we have today of archives, memory, and identity, I really believe are embodied in our, our project. Um, this project, the history makers, began at my dining room table um, 18 years ago. And uh, we've grown to be the nation's largest African-American video oral history um, archive. I want to just show you how the archive works. But before I do that, um, I just want to talk about the importance of uh, partnerships, uh, which was on um, uh, Aisha's chart uh, when it comes with uh, minority-serving projects, Um, trying to gain traction in a a majority-serving world, which is what we have been uh, for the last 18 years. Partnerships have been absolutely critical. Uh, John Unsworth, when he uh, uh, stood up here, talked about our partnership, which began back in what I call the dark years of our project, which was about the years of 2008, Uh, when we forged a collaboration with the University of Illinois and their library school where he was dean. Um, That saved our project, in hindsight, if we had not had that, and the resources of a world-class library school, um, where I actually then met Daniel Pinney, who was the creator of EAD and EACCPF. It was that partnership that sort of wowed the Library of Congress that we were advanced to even have both EAD and EACCPF finding aids. The Library of Congress um, was a seminal moment also in our project, which I'll go over a little bit more. Um, we have an amazing, amazing partnership with them. Uh, but our partnerships first began with Carnegie Mellon University, uh, which is, they've worked with us for 17 years, almost with no funding, and are as aggressive about um, our growth and our success as we um, can be. Uh, The other thing is that um, I see both uh, Monica Rue and Sandra Phoenix and we are forming a collaboration with the HBCU Alliance. That's extremely important to a collection like ours because at the basis, at the time that our collection, what our collection represents, a lot of the people we interview come out of the HBCU. The majority of the HBCU community. So uh, there are a lot of things that uh, we want to see. So I want to show you um, what the history makers is. So we um, this is uh, this is the database that uh, John uh, spoke of. Um, we've done a lot of work. Uh, this is what Carnegie Mellon uh, created for us. Um, I'm going to go here. Um, someone you know. We interviewed uh, Barack Obama when he was Illinois State Senator. Um, And the thing about the Digital Archive, I'll explain a little bit more, but we interviewed him here. Your favorite color? My favorite color? I don't really have a favorite color, maybe blue. blue. Uh, your favorite time of year? That that is the uh, probably uh, late summer really early fall. Uh, your favorite vacation destination? Bali. Uh, and uh, your favorite phrase or saying? The other one?
3: <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was, I was sleeping. <laughs> so, you know, he was actually at Illinois State Center at that time, that's 2001, when, we, um, um, when he was starting to run for office um, for the presidency. Uh, the campaign came by to check out the interview, so I think it checked out. And actually, his narrative is pretty consistent. I want to take you, there are a lot of, I don't um, want to go into this um, a lot, but there are a lot of, um, um, there's a lot in this collection. I'm showing um, things that are, um, were new, you know, early interviews that we did. Uh, William Warfield was married to Leontine Price. He was a well-known tenor. Uh, The thing about uh, people in the classical arts, black people in the classical arts, is that they always were forced to do, um, Porgy and Bess uh, some people you know Adam Moten talks about how her voice was destroyed um, but this we often ask people at the end of the interview to um, if they're singers to do something so this is what we asked him
3: when I was doing a uh, part of uh, doing the show work show and uh, uh, I was there doing it to as he went for a good 40 and with a uh, 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 showbook. And the showbook production was in German. Alte Strom, oder Alte Strom, er muss was wissen, und sagt doch gar nichts. Er fliegt nur steigend, nur immer steigend vorhanden. Er muss nicht Schufen, die Spam vorflügen, das vor die anderen. Ergeben, man muss sterben. Mit des Lieben, hab Angst zu sterben.
2: point um, so with with um, with our um, collection um, basically people never die um, the collection has grown to be the largest African-american video oral history um, collection um, that has ever existed uh, we've done um, now 3100 interviews in 413 cities and towns and um, and so this is been a project of extreme passion, and we would not be here if it weren't for partnerships. Um, and a lot of people have made uh, helped make this happen with a small staff. Um, I do want to say one other thing before I begin this PowerPoint presentation, because we do oral histories, and, and I was a young girl, a nine-year-old, who uh, could not reconcile um, that people would say all these things about um, Um, Booker T. Washington no Carter G. Woodson (laughs) what is wrong with me Um, Peanuts George Washington Washington Carver and his (laughs) Peanuts I'm sorry thank you oh my god I could not reconcile that he could have said all these things with Peanuts when all we had been were slaves and uh, the question of identity and value value is being debated in society here who has value who has not who has contributed who has not Um, And I really have a request um, here for anyone who is in charge of an archive um, that we need to be in extreme partnership because as I stand here, we're losing most of the 20th century of African American history. Um, when, um, you know, I set out to interview people, so about maybe about seven years ago, I started to ask people what they were doing with their paper collections. We don't do papers, so that was not an issue with us. There's no conflict of interest. And so they virtually, literally, less than 1% um, were even thinking about papers. And I can give you lots of well-known names, um, uh, Vernon Jordan, um, Uh, James Earl Jones I mean I could go down the whole list of people that we have interviewed that are not even thinking Danny Glover said he was not valuable enough I mean I keep hearing that over and over again and then on the other side you know we were also trying to get our digital archive that I saw you went to universities and many of them dismissive of us you know sort of sit around or this is sort of black history and you know, and where was our place, but at the and so, what I would do to counteract that a lot of times would say, "Okay, so what do you have in your collection about the black experience?" and what I've been finding is they're virtually we are in a crisis there's virtually nothing saved of the twentieth century and um and so this has become my mission to really sort of talk about um, because um if we don't, we're going to lose probably the most significant period in African-American history that really has existed in the 20th century. So um, here, OK. You saw the digital archive. Uh, we love it that David Levering Lewis said that it was an inestimable tr- treasure trove for historians. And we hope that that will come to be. Um, as I said, it began at my dining room table. Now we're up to, I think yesterday we picked up um, Northeastern University, but um, we are moving, and our goal is to get into 200 universities. Public libraries are also important to us. We started with Chicago Public Library and added Milwaukee Public Library and Salt Lake County Library. And the Schomburg just sent a wonderful uh, email that John read uh, this morning. Uh, we are an interesting intersection between the digital humanities and the and the public humanities. Digital humanities. Um, a priest named Roberto Busa. Um, this is the 1940s, both the digital humanities and public humanities, but he wanted to index all the works of Thomas Aquinas. Um, the father of... Uh, so oral history is basically public, public humanities. The father is a man named Alan Nevins out of Columbia University with their worldwide world, world-renowned um, institute. Um, he wanted to make sure that he recorded leaders. He was working on the biography of... President Grover Cleveland and was concerned with the turn of the century, that people were not writing letters. Um, and that resonates within our project um, also. Uh, we're the largest attempt to record the black experience since the WPA slave narratives. Um, our goal was to be, we're a 501c3, we wanted to uh, preserve and make quietly accessible the untold stories of both well-known and unsung African-Americans and we wanted to do that one person at a time, uh, creating a priceless archive, meaning it could not be replicated. Um, this, is where the, this is where we're housed, uh, 2014. Uh, this is David Packard. He loves moving image archives. We love him because he created this facility. Uh, $163 million gift from the federal government uh, that created that facility, and that's where we are housed, and there's film going back to the late 1800s there. Um, why was this a solid partnership? And actually, <clears throat> Aisha talked about the importance of partnerships, but also MOUs. And so uh, we were a distinct and unique collection. We complemented the existing Library of Congress collection. We were well organized. Very at least, that we were the most organized project that they had ever had come into the into the Library of Congress. We had full intellectual control. Fully uh, digitized using the same SAMA solar system that they had, and we held all rights to our our material. Meaning, everyone who interviews with us, we won't do an interview unless they have a release form. What we gained was it was a, this is a nationally recognized, they're moving image experts, uh, proper facilities, cold fault storage, and they are our permanent repository. Now, I do want to say just real quickly um, that. They, they, you know, we were, it took us three years to get to a final agreement. Um, They came to me and said, we don't want your tapes. I said, hold it, hold it. No, 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 no. Where are my tapes going? You know, and so, and then they wanted my digital rights. And I said, no, 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 because I want to do this digital archive. So we worked that out. So they are a permanent repository. But um, they also took our tapes. And it took them a long time to get the tapes on the shelves. We had to have a celebration. Uh, the other thing is that we are piped by 75 miles of fiber optic cable downtown. Um, and then we couldn't have known at, the po- at that point in time that Carla Hayden would be the Librarian of Congress. And it almost seems magical in many ways the WP were slave were, were, um, housed in the same place as the WP slave narrative, so the stories of the enslaved and the stories of the, the descendants of the formerly enslaved are housed under one roof. And then we have one of our history makers who we had already interviewed now as the 14th Librarian of Congress. How do we define history maker? We define them, the first having a leadership uh, theme, uh, people have made significant accomplishments in his or their own life. they may be well known or not, and also with the two thousand NEH grant, a group of historians uh, helped us with the second definition, and that was people who were associated with the particular movement Association or um, Uh, that or time that's important to the African-American community. So we could not interview Langston Hughes. He had long died. But we interviewed Raul Abdul, who had been his assistant for 25 years. Um, Our goal was 5,000. How did I get to that goal? I wanted to be double the number of WPA slave narratives. And 10% 10 of the Shoah, the Spielberg Shoah Foundation, Steven Spielberg had done 52,000 interviews uh, by the time that we got started. Um, we want to expose the, uh, the collection to the widest audience possible, preserve it, this collection for years to come, and donate it to a nationally recognized archive. The last two we've done, the first two we are still working on. <clears throat> we have tons of content in the collection, black feminism, theology, STEM. We've interviewed 211 of the nation's top scientists, food waste, filmmakers, black arts movement, poetry, entrepreneurship integration in public life there are thousands and thousands of themes uh, now this right here um, shows the green is we're housed in chicago that's where we started so that's the most number of interviews almost 600 new york is 400 dc about 400 um, the blue are where we are making things happen in the red we say that we want to be all blue by uh, uh 2020 um, I do want to say, though, the thing is, is that um, uh, we did not have any interviews in Mississippi until last year, but we had 10 in Salt Lake City because we've had to, you know, we went to Salt Lake City years ago to do one of the A.K.A. Grand uh, Bass Lists. We just, um, Alaska was read until um, a few months ago where we went. I'd always wanted to do an Alaskan um, Frontiers woman, she had been long dead, but that, that um, history, the black history, there where a lot of people think there are no blacks in Alaska, but um, that history goes back to the 1800s. Um, the other thing I want to point out about the collection is that there are more men than women, even though I'm a woman, I can't explain that, but uh, we need to get that corrected. Um, and people are saying now that maybe if it were the collection were started now that the, it would be reversed. In terms of uh, the collection, 612 have died. Of those 612, very, I would say less than 1% have ever written their own autobiography or had a biography written about them. The same thing about their papers. And if you look at 70 and above, which represents two-thirds of the collection, we, re- we will represent the most significant recording of, of them. So let me give the example of Isaac Hayes. When he passed away, his um, agent called me, and I didn't know who he was, and he was asking to see the interview. And he said, you know, afterwards, he said, I knew Isaac my whole life, but I've never heard the things that I heard in that interview. We do what are called life oral history interviews. Um, we have always started with 15 different categories. We had Katherine Johnson, the person who was featured in Hidden Figures, um, and she could talk, and there's a three-hour interview, not like she was rolled out uh, when she came um, out and during the Academy Awards. Um, you'll see here uh, that, you know, um, Education is double-counted, so that's there. Civics, we've done okay, though. There are a lot of young activists coming onto the scene that we will like to record. Business, we just got funding for. Media, we're okay, but going down, those are categories that are missing. And when you'll see music, sports, and entertainment, we thought that they had been well-covered in the black community and found out that that was just not the case. And that's it. Thank Thank you.
4: Good morning. Buenos dias. Um, What I'm going to do is to try to share as much as my work is, so I'm going to divide my presentation into two parts. The first will be my previous work, and then I'm going to present my current project called Dignidad Dignity, which is an exhibition that will be held at the National Archives in Chile. I'm a Chilean born artist a spe- a specialized in printmaking, artist books, installations, media, and performance art. Considering, art. considering art as a tool of social change, my principal aim is to question power relations in the world order, creating in the viewer the ideas that things could be otherwise and thus the desire of change. More specifically, the subject matter of my work departs. From Violence in Dictatorship Chile 1973-1990 vis-a-vis the United States involvement in that violence, addressing memory as a pivotal factor for the understanding of the neoliberal globalized present. For me, printmaking is not just a technique, but rather an aesthetic, a conceptual medium that I use to explore further the theme of memory the theme of memory through a variety of representation strategies. In this sense, the experience, and thus the process of creating an etching, which involves washing the stencil excess and carving out of a wood of a surface, creates an image that disappears and then reappears printed on a paper. This process, its temporality involving invisibility and visibility reminds demands in the public spaces related to the searching, to the searching of truth, yet not of reconciliation as reconciliation's aims is to close the issue of the disappeared and human rights struggles in Chile and by extension in other southern current countries under dictatorial regimes from 1960 through the late 1980s. My work does migrates from the public spaces mottoes such as where are they, don't understand, they neither forgive, not forget, no olvidar y no perdonar, and that they appear alive. inviting the viewer to the connect in the present made out of of the contingency of the past with the politics of of reconstitution by means of faces, names, memory sites, and declassified archives regarding U.S.-Chilean relations during the Cold War. In turn, performance is pivotal in the the, the exhibiting of my work, that is, the the interaction between the body and the voice to narrate a story considering the ruins in the formation of the present. Born during the dictatorship and coming to age in the so-called return to democracy in the early 90s, I'm a second generation witness of the regime's atrocities and a first generation artist experiencing the legacy of the dictatorship in the collective body. It is from this perspective that I speak Giving a testimony of, the, of a present built upon the legacy of the dictatorship. In this sense, both my books and my performance reject the modernist, the modernist idea of a progressive history with a fixed past and thus imminent meaning. In so doing, I participate within the spaces created when my two dimensional works transform into three dimensional imaginary sites of memory, as my books and engravings are also sculptures. In other words, the deployments of the books are there, and their various forms of assembly end up overcoming the traditional format of a codex, becoming sculptors that I call memorials. And these memorials are not there to be contemplated in the distance, but rather to be touched, mobilized once and again, inviting the viewer to participate in the experience of the works and its special and temporal possibilities. An important aspect of the experience of the experience of the work and its spe- uh, sorry, an important aspect of the performance is to learn from the audience experience to exchange thoughts. My recent series, Moving Memorials, an ongoing project of traveling exhibition program and event I began with 2012 in conjunction with Brooklyn Inc. Exemplary shows all the above. Composed of several artist books, in constant transformation, the series its, Mo- it's, Mobili- it's, Mobili- it's mobility rejects a fixed past and, uh, and as an idealistic progress, calling instead for an open book and an open narrative, creating spaces to activate the viewer's effects through the experience of silence. That very silence then transforms is into a metaphoric voice into the present. The books forming the series are El Siglo Militaris Betrays the Country, Intermemory, Human Rights Violations in Chile, Marches, Students' Mobilizations in Chile, Memory and Landscape, Unveiling, The Historic Truth of Chile, Indignity and Resistance in the Foothills of the Andes, A Case Study of Villa Grimaldi, The Right to Know, Silo, Room, and Book Installation, Make the Economy Scream. So this is the right to know under the USCA installation. This is how the portraits looked in a box installation, light box, some of the exhibitions. And this is a work of the same installation that I showed them later at the Center for Book Arts. And then this is in an art book for showing this giant book. So then this is the half of the presentation and then I'm gonna um, go through the second half, which is about the Dignidad project. (coughs) Um, This project I have been working on for the last two years. So it's been show the first part at the Center for (laughs) Book Arts in New York then, it was shown at the Art Space Gallery as part of the Whitney Independent Study Program. And now, it's going to the National Archives in Chile, and then we'll go to the Museum Romano in Haag, Netherlands. Um, Dignity is an exhibition based on secret telephone documents about Colonia Dignidad. An infamous commune in southern Chile that was operated as a torture center by former German Nazis military officers and, and the Chilean DINA, National Intelligence Di- Directorate of Pinochet direct Dictatorship. Found in 2012 by the, the ex Colono and lawyer Winfred Hempel, the audio reveals. For the first time to the public, conversations between Paul Schaeffer and other Nazi's agents during 1978. Through sculptors, sound performance, text, and a selection of historical archives, the installation reveals a complex system of codes and transcontinental action that culminate in crimes against minors and opponents to the Chilean civic military dictatorship. This project is in collaboration with the Association for Memory and Human Rights, Colonia Dignidad, Winfred Hempel, and the Chilean National Archive. <coughs> so this is how the project started. Winfred um, Hempel, who was born inside of the Colonia Dignidad, found four years ago these magnetic tapes on top of the ceiling of Colonia Dignidad, and this is the tape that has the audio contained with sensitive information about internal conversations of Nazi agents between Chile, Peru, and Germany in 1978. <coughs> this CD belongs to a uh, part of 55 unpublished CDs. This is number 45, which Winfred gave it to me just for um, an art purpose. So they recorded telephone conversations that went from Peru and Bolivia by agent Kurt Schönerkamp, then went to Germany where Hugo Barr received that information and then they sent it to Chile to the Colonia Dignidad which was located in the southern Chile. So then the militaries and Paul Schaeffer got the um, information. That's me with Wim Fred working on the documents and the translation of the um, audio. And this is a little bit of part of the translation of the audio, which (coughs) will be also shown at the exhibition as a record and archival um, investigation. Um, So you can see here how, for example, these Um, banal language converts and turn into code language between the agents. So for example, they were talking about um, weddings that meant um, war, or when toys meant guns, or where children's meant militaries, and where playground meant um, air force. So this is something that we were radiographs meant images inside of the colony uh, there were like a lot of banal language that militaries were talking that then was recorded as a common language this is my different sketches and drawings when i start planning how to represent something that should shouldn't be even written in the history so as for this project i couldn't do any line, so I couldn't make printmaking for this project. I ended up making something based much more in an abstraction. Um, So those are my kind of studies of the um, swastika, which originally was a symbol of peace destroyed and taken by the Nazis, and so those are just three-dimensional drawings that help me figure out how can I proceed, and then I discovered or went through an exploration of different shapes throughout one specific um, construction, which is these 25 squares of metal that are connected with hinges that forms that deconstruct and reconstruct symbols of power, such as the cross, the swastika, um, the chakana, um, but also represent the spaces of segregation, tunnels, bunkers, what happened above the earth, what happened under the earth. So then I start working with a musician in New York to divide the audio and connected with four different speakers. So one speaker, um, each speaker represent one of these three countries that were involved in this espionage um, audio. So then we start working with QR codes. And then this was the first time I showed it uh, in public at the Center for Book Arts. So how the sculptor can be turned into many different sculptors. And this is my research um, that I had in, at my studio at the Whitney Museum that helped me developing what was going on and what's the best way to represent Colonia Dignidad. Um, this is an exhibition that I, we had as part of the independent studio program. So this is my first sketch of how I intended to show it in order to communicate as the best as I could. So I ended up doing like a whole installation made of a performance, an audio immersive and a sculptor. And then now we're gonna play a little bit of the performance video. going to move quickly to the um, center or middle of the performance so you can see how the work moves in itself.
3: Okay. Ja, ja, das haben wir auch schon mal Das haben wir so mal Und äh, Christine ist wahrscheinlich auch die Ja, ja. Wo ist
4: So this is how the installation looked like after the performance, and I'm going to go very quick. This is the wall with the ephemeral material, translation, photographs, What the place is today, which is an uh, agricultural capitalism that is still working as with, under a new uh, name. And then this is the National Archive with the Colonia Dignidad archives that led us entry and see for the first time um, what is the nature of, the, of that archive. So we went inside. This is some found names of intellectual enemies, like the poet Pablo Neruda and Los Parra Folklore Band. Um, Those are hand drawings, drawings of the political persecuted by the agents of Colonia Dignidad. Some features personal files. Um, This is an army major description of his practice inside of Colonia. Another um, member of the DINA, um, he worked at the intelligence service at the Southern Central Area, one of the greatest repressors during the dictatorship, some Nazis passports. Um, This is Boris Waste failure case, an American disappeared and still disappeared during the dictatorship in Chile in in, uh, 1985. This is Boris Case, an open archive, international press. Some he was a mathematical from um, Boston, and this is a three-month of the Dignidad exhibition at the National Archives. So, ma, so we are working on uh, increasing the size of the sculptors, and this is how the exhibition narrative will work, and that's. It how it's gonna um, look in this October, two thousand eighteen. Thank you.
0: We have about twenty minutes for questions before lunch. So step right up to a microphone. Introduce yourself.
3: Hi, I'm Biggest political cleavages in voters now is whether or not they supported the Allende regime or the Pinochet regime. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak to how your art takes history and makes it into the present, perhaps the relationship uh, between history and the current political movement in Chile.
4: Um, the, the, the so-called dictatorship in Chile is something that is still right there since we are still living the, the Constitution made in 1981. So that's why I said that we are continuing a neoliberal, a neoliberal present tense. Um, the issues of memory are still something not resolved since everything is kind of getting delayed. Um, what I... What I Kind of
3: work and try to do is to make social conscious and then try to bring the past into the present tense to then see the theater more open. I
2: don't know. Uh, thank you
3: for sharing that. Uh, this is also from Maria, is that correct? Um, you know, your pieces, um, first of all, I like the way you use art to um, tell what I think is you know, something that's very tragic and, and painful.
2: But one of the things that, that I'd like you to speak about is how do people respond to that? Because sometimes we think about archival work and the work that we do trying to develop the best parts of history and not necessarily the other part of history, and sometimes people don't even acknowledge or be a participant of the other of part of, of history. So how do people respond
4: to your work? Um, Of course, I have been feeling different um, feelings and experiences throughout a different audience. I have been showing this in Europe, in the United States, and my country, and of course my country is the most difficult audience, because you are talking to the people who really experience um, the human rights violations, although um, I think uh, that the only artists who are representing um, this pain through art and how this could be some, a little bit of beauty, you know. But as for me, it's how you can give dignity dignity to a past that is also like um, a sense that all as a community and as a country is still living. So as at some point they all ended up not all, that most of the people ended up um, giving me like a thank you to just put this on top of the table and bring the, the debates um, in the current uh, present. Um, of course, I have been also doing first that I can see people who just pass through the um, work and they don't even see it, while well, there are others that even start crying they were like, Involved in some part with campatores, or like, um, especially in the west coast, I have been visiting the codex, um the like Super Bowl is So, it's, I think maybe it's super different depending where you're showing, but nowadays, if you are kind of progressive, then you would think that this is part of our purpose as humans.
3: Hi, I'm Melissa Mitchell, and I'm here I'm with the University of Virginia Library. I have an anecdote and a question. Um, one of my brothers, just this is for you, Juliana, at first. One of my late brother's best friends was a man, is a man named Arnold Gray. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Arnold Gray, right? And he was a general. And then he popped up, and I thought, he's really something. It was really surprising to me that he's really a big deal. There's a general Arnold Gray who was one of my brothers, so that's my anecdote my question is for you the next question and is uh wakanda one of the things that came out of that movie was the fact that there is so little merchandising with respect to black panther um do you think it's going to be different with the next movie i guess what i'm saying is that there are no uh, there are no dolls there are no tights for happy meals Nothing like that that you see in most blockbuster films. Mm,
1: that's interesting. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I think a lot of the, uh, the Chicago, I uh, was last month, um, they had a Comic Con. And that was very really interesting, because I felt that was, there, there are a lot of like, African, well they're beginning more African American Comic Cons um, covering around the country. But this one was filled out by Panther, the future of 2018 and throughout the next couple um, years there was an idea that we're going to call the Comic-Con we're going to change the name of it Um, like we made operations were not buying into this the black community saw it as a way to empower themselves and so they're like at Etsy or other on- online shops or like oh kind of forever you know, church or about sure, about science technology, and so um, the other one that I think that was interesting what I did see in the stores was a little fingering member who, who created but there are a little bit I don't if you, I mean white people. Um, <laughs> and then it would be um,
3: freeze it
2: know, I know that a lot like um, in the 70s, you know, when there was the, uh, what they call the democratization of oral histories, they were paying, and by the time we came around, people, um, there was no money for oral histories. Oral histories are now growing in popularity. So we we, we, uh, established that from the beginning, but the thing that I would say is, are you going to respect um, that story. How I would, I would say that are you going to respect that person? And there are lots of ways that you pay respect. You pay respect by being prepared, not showing up to an interview, not researched. <clears throat> you pay respect by um, the care that you take uh, with that. And I think you also pay respect uh, nowadays with how accessible you can make the story. Uh, but honoring people's, you know, wishes. So one of the things um, um, is that we will not, um, there are things that while we try to get people to go deep in terms of their history and veer from what the party line would be, what they would tell everyone, um, we also, if there are things that they do not want to stay on tape, you know, we will honor that. if we have been in a situation where the cameras were recording where they were not supposed to be recording, you know we will honor that so i think there are a lot of ways that you can show show respect for things um, that are separate and apart from you know pain i want like to say that i
3: enjoyed all the presentations as well uh, i'm most definitely a black, black fan and you spoke about the sweet grass baskets and I had the privilege of taking um, a class. And when, when I asked the uh, instructor woman in, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, you know, is there any anything written about this? And she said, no, You, I'm teaching you and then you tell this to somebody else. And we're gonna grow, we're gonna grow this community and that. we're gonna talk to each other about that. So thanks for sharing.
1: And Juliana, tell me a bit
3: more about how or identify to
2: participate um, with history makers? You know, who does a, how, what is the process for? I mean, selects, select, uh, okay. Okay. So, I, you know, that's a question that I've always hated. You um, <laughs> <laughs> no, at the beginning we didn't have a list. So, it wasn't like, you know, we tried a failed attempt at gathering some scholars together in different disciplines but we didn't have a list and so I always said, you know, we were sourcing people. Now our list has grown to about 7,000 and we get recommendations from all kinds of different places. And, you know, we're now starting to look, pull back and look at different categories and see what they really say. Um, I want to say one thing that, the, 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 the name of our organization speaks says, Individuals, but it is a mis- mis- misnomer in terms of what the organization really is about. We're very much into really we're, what we're really after are people's stories, and you don't know um, where the rich history lies. Um, you know, we have well known people who they don't give this historic interview, and then we have people that are lesser known that are really rich repositories of history, and so. Um, that is that that's you know that's our process so I maybe we're selecting a little bit more now because it's an expensive process but at the same time the collection the value of it is the intersection between all the stories I mean that's really where the value is
0: that is hopefully okay here, as a little community archive See, um, but I actually you mentioned like, the end of um, Infinity Wars. I hope everyone likes that. Um, <laughs> So great.
1: Um, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I was doing it but I, you know, I've read about it, and I'm working on. We I mean, got a trip on tomorrow. But between them, at, at Harvard and at Cornell, um, they both have really good. they have really good ways of intertwining the community of hip hop, um, which you know is like anti-establishment and <laughs> a very radical, its foundation, and we archived at these two prestigious universities. It's quite interesting, but I think how we've around it is by hiring people from the community to work at those institutions. And they are very open
4: Well, other stuff. Um, So for me, is I mean, I wish we can have like this kind of archival world world that you value here. Um, That's why I am here, living in New York, researching from here, but with the distance to research my
2: country. But this is totally part of the memory issue. So it's what it is. And I would say that. I have, uh, I really feel, um, well, first of all, our project wouldn't be where it was if it weren't for partnerships. And those partnerships, they have, I would say um, my Carnegie Mellon partnership is probably um, the least contentious. There have been times when the partnerships have been quite contentious. Where I had to, you know, fight to really defend um, the value of the project, the focus of the project, the funding of the project. I mean, we've had, to, I've had to claw ourselves into funding. We basically are not grant funded. Um, we've raised seven. The collection that you see costs at 17 million. We've had to raise that. That's it's not sustainable to do that. So. The thing is is that, so I have that thought. The other thing I have a thought, and this is when I'm looking at archives all around and very interested in collaborations between uh, majority-serving and minority-serving um, institutions. But then the, the majority institutions don't even know they're African-American alumni. They are invisible to them. And, and, and I can give chapter and verse. I was recently, you know, talking at Yale. Yale has a very, um, uh, they have um, of early American writers. They have, they're sort of the godfather in many ways because they have James Walton Johnson, Art Bontops, um, Richard White. But if you ask Yale right now what they are collecting, they can't tell you what they collected, the black experience. And just recently, um, I had been approached um, by someone who is, has been on faculty there for 50 years. And I had convinced him that his collection should go to Yale because he's been there. He has 47 honorary doctorates. And literally the conversation I had with the library was bizarre and just. Here is someone who has worn Yale's banner for 50 years and they don't even know his name. So the, the, there is a lot of ignorance on behalf of majority institutions of Afri- the African American community. The African American community basically often talks about do they have value? You know, Do they have value? Do their things of value they never thought that they have value? And, and this is a complicated world that we sort of live in because archives are expensive. I mean, there's a lot of money pe- decisions have to be made about what you know, what should be preserved, what should not be preserved. And, and I don't know how to reconcile these issues, but I really think it's positive that um, sessions like this are happening. I think it's not positive to see a room that is so lacking in diversity. And the fact is, you know, when you look at archival training and even training in libraries, you know, most of the people who come into the profession who are minorities are coming mainly through grant-funded projects. And then there are these huge gaps. And I didn't even, I had been really focused on archives and not been so focused on libraries and had a very interesting discussions with a group of librarians. And this is, this has a lot to do with what is chosen to be processed, how things are interpreted, uh, what people say about things, what they take from it, even, you know, what is communicated about a project. I just heard a presentation uh, from a scholar, Well, she called herself a scholar, she called herself a biographer, of the first African-American who attended um, Harvard University, and Richard Greener, who, whose things were found in Chicago, uh, uh, a trunk was found by a man who just happened upon it with his, his um, uh, certificates, his, um, anyway, he found it, and he, and he went to Harvard University and said he would burn it up if he didn't get really a ransom. So the, it went to USC, um, University of South Carolina, And this woman wrote this biography, and it was the worst piece of garbage I could even imagine. And I say that strongly because she had only spent like a few days at Harvard's library. Um, and, um, And she literally said things like in her presentation that passing wasn't that difficult. Or, I mean, her interpretation, because she had no idea of the subject matter that she was really discussing, no context, that the misrepresentation that she was making were really horrible for the community that she was trying to represent and the person whose legacy that she was um, setting to put forth. So I just say it's a complicated thing. Um, but I do believe conversations like this are helpful. But um, the communities will have to also change their first um,
0: thing, so that we can continue this discussion this afternoon. We should adjourn for lunch. Now, I'd like to thank our three panelists for the storytelling.